Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, Dana. Welcome to that Anthro podcast. I'm so happy to talk with you today, and especially because you're, you know, doing your PhD at another UC school, UC Davis. So it's really fun to have someone from a sister campus on. Uh, yeah, thank you for being here and recording this episode with me. It's a pleasure to get to know you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Gabriella. So to get started, I'd love to hear about your experience pursuing higher education, because as I understand, you're both a first-generation college student as well as graduate student, which is a great accomplishment. Congratulations. So what was your undergraduate journey like, and like what schools did you attend? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, thinking about my undergrad career, I started off taking college courses while I was still in high school. And so I went to Delta Community College down in Stockton. I stayed very local um, to Northern Central California. But um, I started taking classes there and realized at one point um, that I just felt very lost. And I had kind of an identity crisis growing up in, in two dramatically different cultures. Um, I was raised Palestinian Muslim, but I also grew up here in the States and while there are similarities between the cultures, there was also really large differences. And so I found that to be very difficult growing up. But I went to Delta College and then eventually majored at California State University, Sacramento. Um, so again, emphasizing I stayed very local. <laughs> I thought I would end up leaving the state for, for grad school, but I only moved 20 minutes. It's, it's you know, the path that needed to happen, I'm sure. It, it was all in the cards. Yeah, I'm very grateful for how things played out. You were telling me before this interview that you actually didn't know, you know, that the field of anthropology even existed kind of before you started your graduate studies. And I think that's something that many, many people say. I've definitely met people that have finished their college careers and they're like, oh, what is anthropology? So I'm kind of curious, like how you ended up falling in love with anthropology and taking classes in it. Mm -hmm. So it was actually, I didn't know about it as an undergrad. I like oh. found it through halfway through and, um, and it was really, you know, I felt, I felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and I was defaulting and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go to med school. Like that was just a default. I was like, I'll go pre-med and I'll figure it out along the way. I, I know I like humans, like I like working with people. I just didn't know, you know, how, what, you know, what perspective what angle to kind of tackle that interest in. 
And um, when I solidified that decision, I was like, okay, let me look at, you know, my requirements. And I was like, oh, I'm going to need, I'm going to need a chemistry course to transfer to still, to kind of satisfy this lab requirement. Yeah. And I just thought, nope, <laughs> I was not ready at all um, to take a chemistry course that intimidated, intimidated me. And to be quite honest, it still kind of intimidates me. My, my roommate is a chemist and I, I watch her work and I'm like, no, it's okay. I'll stick to my stats. Like <laughs> I'm fine. Um, and so to avoid it, I took a, an anthropology course, an introduction to um, biological anthropology. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is what I want. Like it, it just kind of took off from there. And by that point in time, I had actually already taken an um, introductory course to linguistics and cultural anthropology um, and, and archaeology. I had also taken an archaeology class now that I think about it. The last one was this bio anthropology course. And yeah, after that, I was like, okay, game changer. I'm, I'm moving over. Um, it was just something about how, how holistic the field is in terms of looking at human evolution um, that really fascinated me. And, and I guess like on a more personal level, you know, being raised in a Muslim household and coming out of these creationist beliefs, I was like, oh wait, there's actually another way to explain and look at things. And I, I very much loved that. Um, and I, I do enjoy looking at human evolution, researching and reading more about that. Definitely. And I think, like you said, you were having a bit of an identity crisis. I can imagine that finding, you know, a mix of science and humanities probably really helped answer maybe some of the questions that you were having. And you get to learn more about the human race as a whole and, you know, different peoples. I think it's a really powerful subject. Uh, did you find that to be the case? I did. I did. It was, it was really nice because I felt like it it explained a lot of the feelings I had (laughs) and explained a lot of what I observed coming from my families, coming from myself. Um, It it really felt, it sounds so cheesy. It's it's like, it's kind of weird because I'm, I feel like I'm not as cheesy of a person, but when I think about this, I I do get a little corny about it, but I'm like, it did feel like I found something I was passionate about. And, and, you know, I really love and appreciate all four fields of of anthropology. Me as well. I always tell people, I swear it's like pre-programmed into my brain and I'm just (laughs) like following what I'm supposed to be doing. It's just, that's how I feel with bones. I feel like I already knew all the bones in the body, but when I took osteology, I like actually could identify them. It just felt like this innate, innate knowledge that I had that just needed to be brought out of me. Yeah, well, that's how you know you have something that that pulls a spark out of you. 100%. That's so funny. I actually loved osteology. I TA'd for that as well. (laughs) I did as well. I just just TA'd um, for the online version, which of course was different. I can't wait to get back in the lab with the actual bones. But yeah, that's definitely, as you can see behind me, I have some skulls. It's definitely my um, passion is human remains. So after finishing up your undergraduate degree at CSU Sacramento, uh, what brought you to embark on your PhD in biological anthropology at UC Davis? So I always loved Davis as a school and they have an amazing anthropology department. But if I'm being honest, 
Brenna Hen brought me there, my PI. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't have applied had it not been for her getting hired there the year or two before. Um, and I probably wouldn't have known about that because she wasn't on the website yet had it not been for taking a year off and working at another junior college here in Sacramento um, during my time off who, who um, a couple of my supervisors actually did their PhDs at Davis as well and knew that she got hired. Um, and she came from Stony Brook University at the time. And I was really excited and pretty much like set that if Brenna didn't take me in this year, I would wait another year <laughs> and apply um, apply again to see with her if she ends up taking grad students again or or just figure something else out. Um, but she, she does a variety of work um, from looking at TV susceptibility, skin pigmentation evolution, human evolution, modern human origins. Um, and so there was just quite a range that I was ready to kind of like jump into this pool and learn from her and her in her lab. That's great. Yeah, it seems like Brenna does a lot of really interesting work at UC Davis. Um, and I'm super glad, you know, she connected me with you, which is great. And clearly yeah. she has lots of grad students that she's very proud of. And, you know, you're all very accomplished. So that's a wonderful thing to have, you know, to have a to have an advisor that trusts you enough to say like, oh, I'm proud of the work, you know, that my graduate students doing, like go talk about it on a podcast. I think that's a real vote of confidence. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I think it is. It's hard to, it's hard to impress, you know, graduate mentors when they have so many, you know, potentially so many people that they're, you know, overseeing and helping. Definitely. A yeah. Brenna's definitely hands-on and I, I love that. I love that about her. Um, I, you know, went into it feeling like I need this. <laughs> I need someone to light a fire under me mm -hmm. and make sure that I don't get lazy. <laughs> um, and yeah, she's, she's a phenomenal advisor. I'm, I'm very like grateful to be in her lab and at Davis in general, because truly all the faculty in the anthropology department are phenomenal people and phenomenal advisors. What is one of your favorite things about Davis or a program? On like a personal level, I love that it's like a smaller little cow town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I love that I can bike everywhere. I love that I can bike past the cows and say hi. I don't necessarily love that when I go swimming and come up for fresh air, I get cow air, but <laughs> it's definitely a good trade-off. Like I'm fine with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's definitely, there is a sense of community here that I, I enjoy um, within the city itself and even more so in the department. Um, I'm very grateful to have met the friends and community that I found here. Um, I have a great group of friends. Half of my bridesmaids are people from Davis. <laughs> but also the faculty are so open to talk to students from other labs and they're really open for collaboration. I mean, I've walked into Teresa Steele's office so many times just like asking Southern African prehistory archaeology questions like, and I'm just so fortunate and like, happy that I can do that and they're all so welcoming and supportive of other of their students and one another and so I'm pretty I'm really grateful for that
That's definitely something that I've heard about Davis and actually is the place that I would have ended up for undergrad if I didn't choose UCSB. Ooh. I was deciding between Davis and UCSB. And something that, you know, appealed to me about both campuses was their reputation for being a collaborative university and not yeah. necessarily like this um, competitiveness between departments. For example, yeah. like, oh, you're an engineer. I don't want to talk to you rather a real like collaborative spirit. So I'm super glad to hear that, you know, you've also been able to benefit in your own right from that. That's wonderful. I think, I think all academics should be centered around what we can learn from each other. Oh my God, absolutely. I'm super grateful for that. To dive into what you're currently researching for your PhD, could you kind of explain a bit of some of your research questions, maybe how you landed mm-hmm. on the topic, and then we can kind of dive into the details of, of your topic. Yeah, so I'm really interested. I kind of like applied to to work on some of the TB data with that Brenna has mm-hmm. and is currently working on. And then not too long afterwards, I was like, well, it'd be really interesting to work on skin pigmentation and kind of investigate some of that. And so during my interview, I was, I kind of like told her, you know, she was like, oh, so you want to work on TB susceptibility? And I was like, no, like, if it's okay, I kind of want to move toward this. <laughs> and she was very open and receptive um, and supportive. Clearly, I'm, I'm working on skin pigmentation now. And really what I'm asking is, what are some of the, what are the genes that contribute to skin pigmentation and the variation in skin pigmentation that we see within the Khoisan populations in Southern Africa? What is one subject or project that you are currently excited or passionate about that you could share with us? You know, maybe something you're planning for the future or something you're working on right now. Yeah, uh, it's something I'm working on right now that I'm pretty excited. Um, I focus largely on skin pigmentation, but I am putting together a small eye pigmentation project um, Mm -hmm. that Brenna inspired. Basically, it's going to just look at one particular gene to see if um, a SNP or a single nucleotide polymorphism has an association with eye color within our population specifically. And so I'm kind of excited about that because we're getting the data back pretty soon and the eye photos have kind of been sitting there for a little bit. And it's just going to be really exciting to finally work on this project that, that I've been thinking about um, for a while. And it's, you know, a small, simple project, but I am excited to kind of see what comes out of it. Definitely. I think particularly since, you know, skin skin pigmentation and eye pigmentation are things we can see. So it's really cool to learn about something that, you know, I'm sure you're going to be walking around, like looking at everyone's eye colors. Once you like learn more about the genetic mutations, like you're going to be thinking about it in completely different, completely different ways than you used to. Oh my God. It's, it's comical actually. I, I've, definitely been where I've done that with someone in my head I'm like oh god like your eyes are so blue or so green <laughs> yeah you know you work in Brenna Hen's lab and she primarily focuses on you were saying TB research I mean she, she really does a lot within mm-hmm. the field um she is working on TB susceptibility research She has worked on skin pigmentation research, migration, modern human origins. There's really a lot going on. And and it's quite impressive to see one person be able to 
take on such a variety and wide range of things. Mm-hmm. So for you, you're looking at skin pigmentation in the Khoisan population. Could you further elaborate on the culture and subsistence practices of the Khoisan? Yeah, so the Khoi and San groups um, are ethnically diverse populations in Southern Africa. The Khoi practice pastoralism um, and migrated into the region recently, um, within the past two to 3,000 years ago. Um, And the San are hunter-gatherer populations. And while they, you know, I'm parsing them out kind of separately right now, but there's not this neat pattern. There are some groups that um, that practice that might be koi and practice hunting, gathering, and foraging, or there might be san and practice pastoralism. Things don't kind of neatly map out necessarily, but the same is true for language. And so koi san from a linguistics perspective, and it's often spelled with um, with an I when you speak about the Khoisan language um, has three families within it. And these three families are spoken, like they don't have a neat pattern across the populations where just because you practice pastoralism doesn't mean you necessarily speak one language family versus another and vice versa. And you'll see like a wide range of like diversity among the populations. And so, from a genetic perspective, they're very similar to one another. Um, and so we tend to kind of speak about them collectively from a genetic perspective and spell it differently. And often we would spell it, you know, Khoisan with an E to kind of distinguish the difference between the, you know, referring to them collectively from a genetic perspective and from a linguistic perspective. And more recently, in the past few years, um, the Khoi and San have, the San have actually kind of asked to be referred to separately. And that's and so mm. because of their cultural differences that even when we spell it nowadays, we, we do try and do our best and like hyphenate Khoi and San. And so coming out of the populations themselves. And so there, we do work with contemporary populations in Southern Africa um, who identify as Khoi or San Um, or even some other um, name that has, we do work within Southern Africa with populations that identify as Khoi, um, Khoisan groups, but we also do work with individuals who identify as colored, Mm. um, which is an ethnic um, who self, we also do work with individuals who self-identify as colored and it's really an apartheid term um, for individuals of mixed ancestry Um, but what past studies have found is that individuals who identify as colored have high Khoisan ancestry Mm. and so they're descendants of this population um And yeah. 
So before we kind of dive into your research questions, which focus on skin pigmentation, I was curious if you could explain to some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with biological anthropology, what selection pressures are throughout evolution, as well as genetic, which I think we'll kind of get into with your research, that have resulted in a wide variation of skin pigmentation, because there definitely still are some people that aren't as knowledgeable about, you know, why people have different skin colors and what some of the environmental and biological reasons behind that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think to start, maybe just we can talk about the hypotheses and arguably the leading hypotheses today around skin pigmentation and pollution involve this, this balance between needing to photo protect fully and needing to photo activate vitamin D synthesis in the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so the pressure coming from UVR exposure um, and, and both of this both of these things balancing between photoactivation and photoprotection has led to a wide range of skin color in, across the globe. Um, it's hypothesized that regions with heavier UVR exposure have adapted to have darker pigmentation um, to protect against folate. And so folate just happens to be an important vitamin for development and reproduction um, or reproductive success. Um, On the other hand, regions that are further away from the equator are um, subject to less UVR. And thus with darker skin, you just would not be able to produce the right amount of vitamin D. Um, And if you are not heavily substituting with like incredibly rich vitamin D diets, then there's this pressure to kind of depigment your skin. So less melanin in your skin in order to facilitate this vitamin D synthesis and in order to kind of maintain the, the efficient amount of vitamin D. Um, so on that end, you know, depigmentation has evolved to facilitate vitamin D synthesis, whereas pigmentation evolved to kind of photoprotect against folate degradation from mm-hmm. UVR. Just a quick background on some of those terms. UVR, she's talking about UV radiation from the sun. Vitamin D also is a very important vitamin that you get from sun exposure. I guess to start, I'll just say, you know, I'm probably going to use this word or this phrase genetic architecture and really what that what that phrase means or defines is the genes that contribute to a specific phenotype um, and you know all these genes and so one thing that we um, know is that there are more genes there are likely more genes contributing to skin pigmentation so what we know is that different populations have different genetic architectures that contribute to skin pigmentation. Um, And within Africa, this architecture becomes a little more complex. And the Khoisan from a genetic perspective happen to be um, in this intermediate lattice. And what's interesting is that there have not been a tremendous amount of studies on skin pigmentation in African populations. Um, not until like more recent years, most of these studies have been done on or within European populations. Um, 
But really, if we want to like get down to the nitty gritty and look at, you know, human skin pigmentation evolution, um, we'd, it, it'd be in our interest to, to kind of turn toward the population with the most ancestral alleles. And so mm-hmm. an allele is a variation of a gene. And so these ancestral versus derived alleles um, are present in populations at different frequencies. And the Khoisan just happen to have um, higher levels of these ancestral alleles than other populations. And so what I'm interested in doing is really defining their, their genetic architecture for skin pigmentation and being able to identify, um, you know, being able to set the foundation for someone else to kind of investigate these alleles and look at skin pigmentation evolution. Um, But also I'd really like, I'm really excited to to say that I'm pushing for functionally validating these genes. The Khoisan aren't just genetically diverse. Um, I don't know if we mentioned that yet, but they are incredibly genetically diverse, um, more so than other populations. Um, and they happen to carry, you know, more ancestral alleles than other populations as well. Um, so kind of those two in combination, they are also the, they also carry a great deal of pigmentation variation. Um, so it's not just, we don't just see one kind of like a range of skin pigmentation among the Khoisans, but we see more variation. We see a larger variance within the Khoisan than we do in European populations. Yeah, so kind of pulling that all together, you know, I'm truly just trying to define these genes, find them in a GWAS or a genome-wide association study, um, which basically looks at different points across the genome that have tagged these regions and investigates whether or not they have an association with skin color. I'm going to be running this GWAS on the Khoisan and then, um, you know, association is not causation. Mm-hmm. I'll be hopefully um, during the second half of my dissertation, knocking these genes out in zebrafish. So really what I'm investigating is whether or not these genes actually have a function related to skin pigmentation. How do you use the zebrafish um, for that? I'm sure you've heard of CRISPR. Um, <laughs> I have not. This is be... that's this oh, is really? new to me. That's why I was wondering. I was like, "Ooh, what do you do with zebrafish?" <laughs> oh my god. Okay, well, I'm gonna be a noob, even though I should know this by heart, but I can never define CRISPR properly. So CRISPR stands for clustered regular regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. Um, but in its very like in the very small like straightforward sense. It's a um, method to knock out genes. And so if we're using a model organism like zebrafish, we can you know, inject a zebrafish embryo with CRISPR-Cas9 and an RNA guide that interrogates a gene and cuts out a gene that we have found in association with skin pigmentation from my previous half of my research. So the GWAS. And if we see a difference in the phenotype, if we see a difference in our zebrafish, then 
that opens the door to kind of like start explaining that yes, this gene does actually have a functional relation to skin pigmentation. And then if we don't, then we either, you know, do the experiment again or figure out what's. That's super interesting. I wasn't aware that zebrafish were, you know, they would take on and like be able to um, phenotypically exhibit, you know, a gene. Oh yeah. So they have a higher amount of orthologous genes. So genes that have been shared by a common ancestor with humans than other model organisms. And so because of that relation, you, we are able to kind of investigate a bunch of different human phenotypes and diseases in model organisms to kind of get at functionality and understand, you know, some of these mechanisms. Yeah, that's really interesting. And thanks for breaking it down a bit further for me. Bioanth and genetics is definitely not my area of focus, but I still find it, you know, super fascinating, just not where I have, um, the most expertise in <laughs> no no it's it's pretty cool like orthologous or homologous genes that kind of like have been shared so the the fact that we can do that in other species mm-hmm. that are shared from one species to another and the fact that we can do that from like a little cute tiny fish is amazing to me <laughs> oh it's so crazy i mean just in general like how much of our genome we share with animals is so fascinating what is a piece of advice that you would give other first-generation college students who hope to pursue a career in the sciences? Really, when you ask me that question, it really does throw me back to like my high school undergrad experiences where I would have, you know, friends in anthropology that made jokes about creationism or creationist beliefs. And I'm like, well, that's kind of rough to hear coming from a family and coming from myself who identifies as Muslim. Um, And then also kind of looking at, you know, the struggles during applying to grad school. Like I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, I did not know anyone with a PhD personally um, and didn't necessarily have someone at my community college or university that I connected with to be able to talk openly about some of the challenges I was facing. And so I struggled looking for a role model and that, you know, that put a damper at the time more than I realized, like looking back at it now, I'm like, oh, I really did like struggle with that portion and that kind of like step I wanted to take in my life. Um, And so my, my biggest thing really to anyone is just don't be afraid to ask people questions and persevere. Like I cannot stress enough, like how many times, even now I still struggle with this, how many times I had a question that I just felt was stupid or just like, didn't know, didn't know if I was the only one, didn't want to stand out in front of my class, like that I didn't know this information, didn't want to look like I didn't put the effort to look for the information I needed. And, and I just really like scared away from asking the things I should have been asking. And so I would definitely, definitely tell people, do not be afraid to ask questions and do not be afraid to push for the answers that you need. Um, And, you know, maybe look for them in a little more untraditional places. Um, If you can't find them in the most obvious, look somewhere else. 
Um, I think, I think if you can have that grit and perseverance, you, you can really get through, get through whatever you need to get through to get to what you want to be doing. I think that's a great piece of advice. And I think that, you know, what they tell you about office hours is true. Like go to office hours. I know that's maybe more of like an undergraduate thing, but just in general, reaching out to professors, maybe not all of them will be as equally receptive, but for the most part, like they do want to answer your questions and they will, even if we think, you know, it is a stupid question. I found that just the simple act of asking shows that you are engaging And I think you're right, like asking for that, even if it's help, you know, Mm -hmm. help maybe finding um, resources, help finding funding, help, you know, getting into a certain class, like they are there to, to help you and to serve you. Mm -hmm. And I really think that if you search out those resources, like they definitely are available and, you know, hopefully one day you'll be able to take that, take that role, you know, and be a mentor for someone who may come up to you where whatever you do do with your career whether you know it's teaching or you know in the sciences you can be you know what you are missing and I think that's a really powerful position to be in because experiencing you know hard times and inequalities is obviously devastating but what you take and do with that can be really impactful and I think yeah yeah, that's something that is so important what you do with it yeah and honestly some good might come out of even the silliest of questions I um I remember running for like vice president of like the uh (laughs) of the anthropology club on my campus and I got beat by someone who didn't even attend the school yet they were transferring in (laughs) and so I was like oh wow like (laughs) I knew I kept quiet. I didn't realize I kept that quiet. Like, <laughs> and so I, you know, being a little stubborn and, you know, I, I might be on the quieter side at times, but I am kind of competitive. I kind of walked into the, um, my advisor's office at the time who, who also kind of supervised the, the club and was like, am I even allowed to lose against a transfer student? Like what, you know, what, how did this happen? And he just kind of looked at me and was like, oh, I didn't even realize the student didn't go here. Um, but the answer is yes. Apparently I can go ahead and lose to them, which is fine. Um, the vote is the vote. He looked at me and said, you know, why are you interested in taking this role? And I said, honestly, I just want to be prepared to go to graduate school if that's the route I choose to go. And I would like for something to stand out. And he said, well, I don't think you're going to have too much stand out if you're just this, you know, ha- carrying this position for the club. I think, you know, if you want to stand out, come do some work for me in the archaeology lab. And so I worked in that lab and um, worked in the curation facilities for Sac State for probably my last two years. And I, I gained a lot out of that experience. And when it came time to actually applying to graduate school you know I looked to him and I was like you know I was able to build this this connection and this network to to my advisor um that was you know more than just you should take this class and that class and was able to ask him things that I you know my parents didn't know the answers to and and it might have not been able to ask him everything but it was I was truly really really grateful 
um, I really am grateful to have had his support. Um, as Dr. Fisher, if you're listening to this, shout out to you. Thank you. <laughs> Very fortunate to have had, had him there and taking on that role. And it was all because one moment I was so, <laughs> so ready to pop because I was just like, how did I lose to someone that didn't go here that I asked a silly question over mm-hmm. something that probably doesn't matter, but it I ended up getting something a little better than that. That's a great experience. Um, what, what type of collections were you working with? I mean, they were so old. We were all... Um, like from what area of the world, I guess, I mean. Yeah, yeah. They were all from California. Oh, okay. From, from what I understand. Um, but I just kind of, yeah... So I just have a few more questions for you. And um, one is, what is one problem or question that you would like to help change or answer with your work? And it could be in the future. I think, yeah, I think I'm thinking a lot more present and I'm thinking about like, just kind of the push for diversity in research, Um, you know, not just from like a faculty and, grad student perspective, but also from where we are researching, who we are researching. And, you know, most of these pigmentation studies have been done on European populations. And I'm very excited to see like other labs and including myself working on skin pigmentation within more diverse populations. Um, And so I'm really excited to kind of contribute to that and, go back to South Africa and sample some more participants in the study. Yeah, that actually was a question that I forgot to ask you earlier was, um, has, you know, have you had to travel to Africa to collect this data? It sounds like you have. I'd love to hear about your experience there. Oh God, I loved it. Um, (laughs) I pretty much, the moment I found out um, Brenna and Austin Reynolds, who is now teaching at Baylor University, um, we're going to South Africa during my first year. I was uh, ecstatic and I was like sneaking over to Brenna's office, like weekly asking her, can I go to South Africa? You know, <laughs> we'd have our meeting once a week. And at the end of the meeting, I'd be like, so are you still going? Where are you going? Like, okay. And then I'd wait the next week and I'm like, you need someone else to come. <laughs> and then it was like, Brenna, you should just take me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and her response was, if you can find the money, I'll take you. And so I was like, okay, I got to find the money and was very fortunate to have gotten a um, summer grant from UC Davis to, to go. And it was um, truly an experience. It, it really was to actually get to meet the people um, that I would end up, you know, going back and talking to about these results and, you know, talking to them about my, about my project personally, one-on-one and whether or not they would even be interested, mm-hmm. like, you know, they might not want me to be there. Like, and then that just put everything in a new perspective. And I think kind of, kind of tied me a little closer to my project to be able to, to talk and explain and hear their voices. Um, and yeah, I, I'm tr- so excited about going back. I, I really, you know, I would have been coming back around right now had mm-hmm. COVID not happened. Um, but it looks like, you know, hopefully things go well and I'll be there this summer. Yeah, they're doing a really strict lockdown. I heard I had one of my other guests, she did a, she was um, 
she did an inst she went for an institute there in South Africa and she got stuck she went before the pandemic she's like I wasn't people weren't even allowed to walk their dogs she was like stuck in her complex so yeah. a very a very severe lockdown but yeah um when you were there did you get to go on safari I I will say that um we took the weekends off we, we it was really a probably six and a half seven weeks of sampling and within that time we collected 176 people so it's really like like a 30 to 45 minute process for each individual and we got our weekends off so we didn't do too much with it um but Brennan and I did take a girl's trip and leave Austin at one point um <laughs> poor guy he was sick we did get to visit the Tonqua um national park which was so stunning and we went on a little hike and that that was honestly one of the highlights I just remember walking around and seeing some some random spring box skeleton or like looking and hunting for some stone tools with Brenna like that was really fun and at one point we drove up to Akrabi's national park as well Akrabi's I think it's Akrabi's falls yeah mm. because there's this gorgeous waterfall um and then that was an experience because we got up early morning and kind of drove through the park and I got mm. to see kudu and giraffes um and zebras it, it was it was a lot of fun um definitely have a lot of those posted on my Instagram <laughs> and I think a couple on Twitter oh my so goodness I don't follow <laughs> you. I need to do, I need to right now. Well, I'll have, I always put all the info of my guests in the episode notes, but um, what's your, what's your Instagram? I'm going to follow you right now. Oh yeah. Cause I'll um, forget. D a dot N U H. And that's it. <laughs> Dana. <Okay>. I got <laughs> because you. Everyone gets my name wrong. Yeah, no, honestly, that's smart. Um, and the last question, I always like to end off our episodes with kind of like a positive fun note. And I think, you know, the people behind the science are just as important as the science itself. So what are some of your passions outside of anthropology? What do you love to do? Oh, God. Oh, my God. It's so funny. I just love working with my hands. That was actually a concern of mine going into um graduate school looking at genetics I thought I'm going to be on a computer the whole time mm. I miss holding some bones um but I just love working with my hands like I love the idea of like refurbishing furniture and Ooh, yeah. stealing furniture off the side of the sidewalk well I guess it's not stealing if it's, it's on the stealing. sidewalk um I really really love taking photos um I use my grandpa's film camera um and so that's the majority of my like online photos from like Instagram and even some of Twitter and that was the only thing I photographed with when I was in South Africa is I really like taking photos and I just love using my hands to like refurbish furniture plants I'm definitely holy crap I have so many plants um I've actually <laughs> been trying to thin it down so I've slowly been taking like one plant to lab every month <laughs> I kill and, them yeah. all. I do everything oh, really? nice for them and they don't like living with me. Oh my God, send me pictures. I'm sure we can figure it out. Oh, they, they sure like, literally, they all died. I have one succulent that's been holding on from high school. And it's like, I almost feel like if it dies before I graduate college, like I'm not going to graduate or something. Like oh, I'm, no. I'm very protective of the one succulent that has survived. 
Yeah. No, it survived for a reason. You're doing good. You might just be more of a succulent person. I have a yeah, lot of tropical is. plants. We're the opposite. Yeah. I need I need something that will let me love it a little bit more. I have a lot mm-hmm. of tropical plants, so I water them frequently. But my succulents tend to die. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think my apartment right now doesn't have like the best um like light into it. So I think when I move, that'll also help. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I'm gonna stop recording, but it was great to interview you. 